Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 131, for the 22nd of January, 2014. I'm Chester Wisniewski, and I'm here with Paul Ducklin. Welcome back, Paul. Hello, Chester. I was going to start out this week's Chat Chat talking about Mac malware. We haven't really talked about uh, Mac threats in quite a while. I mean, it's been pretty quiet on the Mac front. I saw you wrote up uh, some details on a new one on Naked Security this week. Uh, what's the scoop? This was a one of those... Uh, undelivered courier item scams. Windows users will probably be quite familiar with these. A courier company is trying to deliver something to you. The delivery is unsuccessful. And uh, let's sort this out so that stuff can be delivered because it's quite important, obviously. What would be the harm in opening what looks like a PDF? Um, well, in this case, if you're on a Windows computer, you get Windows malware. But if you're on a Mac, you get uh, not a PDF file, but an application that has been given the icon that makes it look like a PDF. And that program is the malware. It goes and has a look on your computer, looks around for Microsoft Office files, zips them up and sends them off. And like any good bot or remote access Trojan, it also has a feature that makes it go out and get additional stuff, which of course could be whatever the attackers want to do this morning or this afternoon. Right. So you, you and James Wyke from our labs uh, talked about botnets in a recent techno. And so this particular one isn't being used in the traditional immediate monetary gain way of crypto locker or fake antivirus or turning you into a spam bot. This is what most people would probably call a rat or a remote access trojan rather than a bot. I see those as two sides of the same coin. It's a program that sits in the background and gives up control of your computer to some outsider. Generally, to my mind, the difference is that a bot is usually more concerned with cyber crooks who want to use your computer to make money through click fraud, spamming, stuff like that. Whereas a rat is more about people who want to have a look around on your computer and actually find what interesting files you've got and steal them, perhaps because they're into identity theft, espionage, intellectual property theft, whatever it might be. Now, when you when you download this malware, uh, your Safari browser presented you some sort of a, a warning letting you know that you were getting an application. And I also saw a study from Cambridge University talking about the efficacy of these browser warning messages, whether that be things like SSL certificates not matching the site correctly or Internet Explorer's smart screen filter warning you about the, the file types you're downloading and whether, you know, that's a common file that's downloaded or if it looks suspicious. Did, you know, what, what, is, what do these messages look like in Safari? I mean, was it easy to tell that something bad might be happening? Chester, I thought so. It's easy to believe that what you're about to open probably is a PDF, but the operating system comes up and says, hey, by the way, this file you just downloaded is in fact an application. Are you sure you want to open it? The big trick here as far as the attackers are concerned however is that the application was digitally signed which does bypass the warning that OS 10 would normally give you to say hey this file comes from an unidentified developer as we see surprisingly frequently in the windows world crooks and attackers out there are quite adept at getting hold of digital signatures by fair means or foul yeah, we've even uh, seen in some of the research that one of our, our colleague uh, Gabor has done showing how 
legitimate signed apps that truly are from where they're at, uh, if they have vulnerabilities, can even be leveraged to launch malware like happened with, I think, the NVIDIA control panel and some other applications that we saw involved in some attacks last year. The other thing to bear in mind, of course, is that you should never confuse a digital signature with some kind of assessment of the program that got signed. Ironically, uh, as recently as December, Microsoft published a security blog post with a very uncompromising title, Be a Real Security Professional, Keep Your Private Keys Private, which pretty much says it all. If you don't do that and crooks get hold of your code signing keys, then they're basically stealing your imprimatur and they're able to masquerade as you and go with any legitimacy you may have earned. Yeah, and I think that's what interested me about the Cambridge report. You know, looking at it, one of the findings in the study was um, that people are more likely to click things or believe messages when they come from a friend or someone they believe has uh, some sort of vested authority. Of course, if you have a, a, something that says it's coming from Microsoft, for example, or perhaps uh, a close friend of yours on Facebook, that you're more likely to believe that message or click links in that message. So. Uh, I guess if somebody were to steal your signing certificate, in essence, you're allowing criminals to borrow your social capital, right? And of course, you do bypass at least one security warning that would otherwise appear. So in the case of the Mac malware we've been talking about, if it were not digitally signed, then there'd actually be a warning about an unidentified developer. You'd then have to right-click and go, yes, I really do want to run this application, and everything would be much harder, and you'd probably be much less likely to do it. Well, and the clarity of messaging, I think, was also you know part of what was talked about in this study, and it turns out clarity of messaging is costing Apple at least $32.5 million dollars. The FTC came to an agreement with Apple about, I guess, you know, purchases. I, I'm not a big iPad user and I don't buy things from the iTunes store. But I guess when you authorize uh, a payment for like an in-game item and this type of thing that your iPad sort of stays unlocked for a while and lets you continue to make purchases, um, it turns out to be a pretty expensive mistake for Apple. Yes, apparently one parent had complained that her daughter, I think, had managed to spend $2,600 in the Tap Pet Hotel during this window of opportunity. And uh, the FTC's complaint, I, I think, was very well presented. The buy button and the now enter your password to approve the purchase are two completely separate windows, and it's not obvious that one relates to the other. So the FTC's complaint was that from a workflow point of view, Apple would know that this app would be played by a kid and that it would be the kid pressing the buy button and that then the child would probably hand the device um, to his or her, one of his or her parents and say, mummy or daddy, can you approve what I've just done? And it wasn't really obvious when you typed in your password exactly what you were doing. And it didn't remind you either if you had set this convenience option that actually meant that once you've done one in-app purchase, you didn't need to put your password in for 15 minutes. And uh, Apple decided not to contest that, so they're paying up. Which is good. I mean, it, it, it's nice that they're acknowledging it and going to make some changes to the workflow in iOS for app purchases. And one of the things that some of my friends have done when they hand over a mobile device to a child is not to tie those accounts from iTunes, for example, to a credit card, but rather put in a prepaid 
card, an Apple store card or whatever ahead of time saying, okay, here's $20 that you can use to buy music or Angry Birds expansion. That's all your, you know, you get your 20 bucks for the month and it's not tied to a credit card. And once the money's gone, it's gone. And, uh, you know, I think it teaches some good fiduciary discipline to the children. And it also prevents you from being in a situation where you bought uh, $2,000 in virtual goods. So that might be another way for people that want to manage these types of things, whether it's Google Play or iTunes and that kind of thing. It makes it a little safer if it's not tied to a credit card. Clearly, many parents have been in a position that their children have spent money either that they didn't expect or more than they intended to the point that the FTC has intervened. Now, if that's happening on this sort of scale, you can imagine how many accidents are happening with children who are messing around with iPads also used for work, sending tweets by mistake, deleting emails, accidentally locking things so they can't be used later. If you've got an iPad that you use for work purposes, then you need to be very cautious about handing it over to your kids so they can play a game, whether or not you intend to allow them to make in-app purchases. Well, speaking of apps, um, we talked in the last chat chat about some of the insecurity of some of the mobile banking apps. And it turns out that mobile banking isn't the only place we do financial transactions. Obviously, iTunes, which we've just been talking about. But a lot of folks uh, put their coffee money on their Starbucks app so that they can pull out their phone when they're at the cafe and purchase a coffee. I even wrote a little limerick about the problem that Starbucks found itself in. Uh, it goes like this. A coffee shop from the Northwest implied it was doing its best to keep you secure, but it managed to store all its passwords in plain text at rest. And that's exactly what happened. The Starbucks app had some crash logging, but of course they were dumping stuff into that log file that they would never have thought of putting anywhere else, and that included your plain text username and password so that anyone who stole your phone could go in, dig out that file, and they'd know the password you'd chosen with Starbucks, which, if you'd reused your password, might get them into other accounts, and, of course, meant that they could then just spend your money at Starbucks. You might not lose a million dollars, but writing plain text passwords to disk is always a no-no, is never necessary, and uh, fortunately, Starbucks have now stopped that practice and issued an updated app. Now, I have a bit of a public service announcement for PR people out there because Starbucks seems to have fallen slightly into the category with Snapchat of the non-apology apology, sort of one of these, we're sorry that you feel harmed by this, which is not really saying you're sorry at all. You know, these types of activities are inexcusable. I don't care whether it's my Starbucks card or whether it's access to my Tamagotchi pet or what it is. Storing passwords, as you say, on the disk is, is never acceptable, especially especially when organizations understand how much password reuse there is. Uh, you know, we saw a few months back, you know, Facebook looking at the Adobe passwords and disabling accounts because of password reuse. This isn't exactly a secret that you might use the same password for your Starbucks app that you use for 11 other things on your phone. It, it's really inexcusable and a, a genuine apology is, is worth all its weight in gold when it comes to the press instead of this nonsense that you're sorry that we feel like we were harmed. Ironically, Starbucks could have said a lot less and meant a lot more in how they presented what went wrong and what they did. But to be fair, they, it seems they have fixed the problem. But to all app developers out there, all of the rest of your app can be compliant with the PCI DSSs, with 
OWASP best practices, and then you go and keep information that might be useful for debugging, and you go and give away the keys to the castle. Not a good idea. Let's wrap up the chat chat with a final story that um, seems like a repeat again as well, which is the Korean Credit Bureau, which is a credit rating agency in South Korea, um, had an employee steal identity information, things like social security numbers and and, uh, financials on 20 million South Koreans, nearly half of the population of the entire country in one go. And there was nothing suspicious whatsoever about accessing 20 million records at once. Yes, it's sort of like WikiLeaks all over again, again, isn't it? Yeah. One contractor, if you don't mind, who retrieved 20 million lines of data out of a database and wrote it to a USB key. And at no point did an alarm bell even give the slightest tinkle, apparently. The idea that an organization that is holding this sort of dynamite data should not have at least some kind of data loss prevention strategy in place that would warn that something like this was happening, at least log it so that it could be tracked sooner, kind of beggars belief. Yeah, and unfortunately, it reminds me a bit even of the the Snowden incident, which apparently was a SharePoint database that he sucked down every document in the entire SharePoint database because contractors were given super admin rights because it was too inconvenient to give them granular rights to the information they were supposed to have access to. You'd hope that other similarly sensitive databases would notice hoovering up the whole thing. (laughs) I mean, that's just so embarrassing. Yes, even if there's some kind of warning that he is allowed to override and carry on getting the data, but that at least makes a permanent record that he decided to proceed. That would prevent genuine mistakes where, you know, he means to retrieve 2,000 records, but he's got a defective SQL query and it sucks down 200,000 records. And it would also mean there would at least be a fighting chance that you'd realize that this guy was up to no good around the time that he was up to no good, not a year or more later when he's actually sold the data on the uh, underground market. Yeah, I mean, hopefully the listeners of the chat chat are a little more savvy and when they hear stories in the news, they look at them and say, could this happen to my organization and what am I doing to prevent it? And that's really, I think, the purpose of talking about these stories more than just shaming the people that maybe made a poor decision. There are lessons to be learned here, and it is the reason we like to talk about these things. Yes, to lose a million records could be a mistake. To lose two million records is carelessness. To lose 20 million records is at or beyond the uh, border of incompetence. Yeah. Well, that concludes Software Security Chat Chat 131. As always, for the latest security news, you can visit us at nakedsecurity.softless.com. And for all of our podcasts and our RSS feed, uh, all of our audio, you can go to soundcloud.com slash softless security. Until next time, stay secure.